Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Amen. Good to sing with you guys tonight. Hey, I hold in my hands a $20 bill, okay? Don't get excited. I'm not giving it away. Sorry. Um, Andrew Jackson sits on the front of this, and you're familiar with how this works. Kind of weird, actually, that you can take this piece of paper anywhere you want to and honor it for $20. You can take it to Best Buy. You can take it to, to Starbucks. You can do what you can give it to each other. You can do whatever you want to do with it because it means the same thing everywhere, right? You know how money works. You're like, thanks for the econ lesson, Ben. This has been good tonight. Um, why? Why is this worth $20? What, is 20, what does dollars even mean? Okay. Well, the reason why this is worth $20 is because the United States Treasury says that it's worth $20. That's why it's worth $20. You can't just print one of these out on your home inkjet printer and take it to Best Buy and be like, I would like to present you with this. You'll be escorted away in handcuffs because the U.S. Treasury does not honor these when you print them out in your home inkjet printer. Just by way of example, I had my nine-year-old daughter recreate this, this $20 bill, okay? And this is what she did. This is the one I've got in my hand right now, okay? Do you guys know what this is worth? Nothing. This is worth absolutely nothing. And before you fight me on that, because some of you are like, man, that's terrible. That has sentimental value. Exactly. Sentimental value equals zero dollars, okay? It's all just heart money. Okay, if I walk into Starbucks and I try to present this to them, no coffee, no coffee. And if you want to fight me on that, then come give me $20 for this later. I'll trade you, all right? I'll give Nora eight bucks back, okay? And we'll call that a good transaction in that. What I want to get at here is we're getting into, I already mentioned tonight that we're going to be talking about trust. I want to talk on the front end about authority because those, those two things are tied together with each other, authority and trust. Why does this $20 bill have value? Why can you trust that if I gave this to you, it would actually be worth uh, $20 only because that it's backed by something with authority. That's the only reason. And if it wasn't backed by real authority, you couldn't trust it. That's the way the authority and trust always work together that way. So let's jump from economics into history for just a moment, okay? When we talk about the Bible, it's super interesting. And this is foreign to us. I mean, it, I'm kind of fascinated with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. It's so abnormal in our modern day, but it is so normal in, if you look at the, the course of human history, for one country to want to redraw boundaries for another country. And in just the Old Testament, you guys, we have the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Greek and the Roman Empire. I mean, when Jesus walked the earth, a lot of the scriptures that we're talking about, the Roman Empire was the empire. They were the occupying force they had decided that your land was their land, and you couldn't stand up to the Roman army. They, I mean, the Roman Empire was the strongest army in the world. And here's one of the ways that they worked. So, again, the people of Israel barely had a nation of their own for much of biblical history. They were occupied by these other forces. And the way the Roman Empire would work is they would come in and they would let you keep parts of your own little culture. So they would let the Jewish people be the Jewish people. They could practice their own religion. They could still do stuff at the temple as long as it was contained, as long as it fit within the Roman agenda, and until it didn't. 
And in some ways, that helped the Roman Empire keep control. Because if you could still practice, you know, your own religion and have your own cultural identity, then you didn't have a reason really to try to overthrow the Roman Empire because you were okay, sort of. You still had to pay your taxes to Caesar, and you still had to do all of these things, but at least you still had part of your culture there. And so, again, within the proper boundaries, the Jewish people could still be the Jewish people under the occupation of the Roman Empire. That was the space that Jesus walked around in. And in Rome, Caesar literally was considered partly divinity. They considered Caesar, who was their king, to be partly God. And so in the Roman Empire, this is, I promise this will matter in the text, okay? I'm not just trying to bore you with history in this. This will matter when we get to our text. But in the Roman army, they would have legions, which were 6,000 men. And then usually those legions were divided up into about 60 groups of 100 soldiers each. And they would call those, the, uh, the, the person who was in charge of 100 soldiers would be a centurion, because Latin, centum, which where we get century, is a hundred, okay? And so we're going to run into this guy tonight who is a centurion, meaning that he's in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. That's a lot. This guy has authority. And when you run into him, his words carry weight. Because when we're talking about authority, he carries the authority of Rome with him. In other words, if you're a soldier under this guy in the military, what he says goes. And you have to practice it. If you don't, you aren't just defying him because he carries the authority of Caesar and he carries the authority of Rome. So he gets how Rome says, I mean, Caesar says something and that is a Roman command. And that comes down to him and he commands his soldiers to do it and his soldiers do it. The centurion, that's the way it works. That's the way it works in the Roman empire. And so we get a taste of authority meeting authority when this centurion comes to make a request of Jesus. Here we go. Matthew 8. When he had entered Capernaum, that's Jesus, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to interrupt the text a couple times here. Keep in mind, this is unique. Most of the people that we have been looking at who've been coming to Jesus have been poor. Um, but that's, and a lot of them have been Jewish or they're familiar within Jewish culture. This dude is a total outsider. He's part of the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, he's a military leader in the Roman Empire. But Jesus' popularity, people know that he has been healing. So this centurion comes to visit him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, meaning Jesus said to the centurion, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Some translations say, was amazed. And Jesus said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. They continue that interaction for a little bit longer. And then Jesus says, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. What a crazy thing we have here. I mean, when you think about authority. Because we have a guy who has authority in the Roman Empire. We have a guy who's a representative of Caesar in Rome talking to Jesus, who's the authority of the universe. 
leader of a spiritual world, leader of a spiritual kingdom, leader in a human kingdom, leader in a human world, talking to each other, one recognizing authority. I find that fascinating, number one. But number two, Jesus specifically says here, maybe you noticed in there, it says that he was amazed by and commended the faith of this centurion, a non-Jew, who he said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. That's a big deal. And that's what I want to focus in on tonight. Why? What was it about this centurion and his interaction with Jesus that Jesus commends and says, man, that's great faith. That is great faith. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Well, let's start Let's start with a tone of submission. Did you catch that? I wrote down three different pieces here. Verse 6, the centurion says, Lord, my servant is suffering terribly. He calls him Lord. There's an, a tone of submission in calling, approaching Jesus as Lord, especially as a man of authority. Verse 8, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. He understands that, that Jesus carries a different level of authority than he does. And there's a confidence in Jesus' ability. You just say the word and he'll be, and he'll be healed. I know it. I know how authority works. I tell my people to go. I tell, them, I tell my people to jump. They say, how high? I get it that if you were in charge of the spiritual world, you don't have to come to my house. You have the authority to say this, and it'll be done. Now, when he says specifically, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel, faith, that word. Okay, I talked about this just a little bit at the fall retreat campfire. But um, these two words, pistis and pistuo in the Greek, one of them is a noun, one of them is a verb, often either translated as believe or have faith. One of them is the noun form, one of them is the verb form. But here's what's crazy. We think about belief cerebrally. I believe something mentally. Oh yeah, I believe that. I believe that's true. I believe that it, that exists. We throw those words around about this all the time. Oh, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, I'm a believer. I believe that. And oftentimes what we're doing is we're reducing that to a mental exercise. You guys, that's not what that word means anywhere in Scripture when you see it used. It carries a connotation of trust. That's different. So, I mean, it's like me looking at the stool and being like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that looks solid. Yeah, I believe that it hold my weight. I think that's good. I like that. There is something entirely different, you guys, from me actually putting my weight on it and trusting that it's not going to fall and splinter underneath me, right? This thing was just shaky all over the place. It'd be like, I, I mean, I believe in it, but I want you to sit in it first. Not, I don't want to do it first, okay? No, this, this idea of I'm putting my weight into this thing, that's what that Greek word means. That's what Jesus is commending. This guy isn't saying, oh yeah, I, I think that you can do it. He's trusting that Jesus will do it, even though he has seen no circumstances that tell him that yet. I might make the argument for you tonight that one of the hardest places to show faith and to trust God and his authority, like we've been talking about, is when you haven't seen the circumstances change yet. When you're praying prayers... It's one thing to be like, oh, I see things trend in the right direction. God's moving. I see it. Hashtag blessed. We're moving. I get it. We're moving the right direction on this. It's a whole nother thing when you are still in the valley and you're praying desperate prayers and you're not sure how they're going to come out. That's a whole different place of saying, no, I trust the authority that sits behind this. You understand? The authority that sits behind the trust is worthy to be trusted. Because God is good and he knows what he's doing. That is the thing that sits behind this. I did a little word study 
Um, if you're the kind of person who wants to do more on this later in the week, this may be a good thing to grab a pic of with your phone. But I did a little word study this week. I'm not going to stay on this very long. Trust you guys scripturally. And I, I didn't, until I started pulling up these verses, I didn't realize that the Bible does this all the time with the word trust. It's like a gateway to other things. When we trust God, there are other things that it brings into our life. Less fear and anxiety. That's all over. I just grabbed three different scriptures there. Psalms and Isaiah. When we trust God, it brings perfect peace into our life. Isaiah and Romans. When we trust God, we're known to know him more closely. We're brought into closer relationship with him. We have a sense of joy. We have a sense of his love. We have a sense of discernment. There's a sense that we have a sustained life in him. You guys, I could keep going. This was just the first handful that I found to realize, man, trust is like a pipeline into all these other things that I know that you want and that I want. And when we begin to take these steps of faith and trust and being like, God, help me to take the next step of what it means to lean into you. Not just to believe in you. Oh, yeah, I think you could do that, I guess, if you're God. But to actually put your trust in something and say, no, I'm going to put my weight on that. Can you do that, God? <clears throat> Why don't we have that, that kind of confidence? Why don't we pray with that kind of confidence? You know what scripture says about prayer? Let me give you another just quick sampling here. Uh, Jesus says, whatever you ask, you will receive if you have faith. There's that word again, Matthew 21, 22. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. That's John 15, 7. John said that if we ask according to his will, he hears us. For it's first John 5, 14. James tells us that the prayer of the righteous are powerful and effective. That's James 5, 16. Matthew 7, Jesus even goes so far as to be like, hey, you humans, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. If one of them asks you for a, a piece of bread, you're not going to give them a snake. <laughs> like, that's the language that Jesus uses. And he says, and you're evil. He says, you're not perfect. And yet you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more do you think your heavenly father wants to give? That's Matthew 7. So you guys, we serve this God who says he's not, he's not uh, stingy. He doesn't live in this world of scarcity. Like we do sometimes where we're like, oh, I got to protect. I don't know if I have enough to give away. I'd like to be generous, but I got to keep enough for myself. It's not, that is not the way that our heavenly father works. He's generous with his kids. He asks us to ask him to lean into prayer, to trust him. He's even given some of his authority to us. So why are we so hesitant to do it? Let me give you a couple reasons tonight. Oops. Okay, back, back. I got to go backwards in my notes. What does, what keeps us from trusting him, from asking? And it's, again, for some of you, it's some of these barriers that you've written that you might still be holding in your hand. So maybe you're skeptical that God actually works in this way. My encouragement to you, because you're just like, you know what, Ben, this, is, this all sounds really great, but I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that. I don't know if I trust that God can do something like that. I don't know if he still does. We're, we're in this whole sermon series on miracles. I don't even know if he still does miracles. My encouragement to you, keep showing up. Keep leaning in. The stuff that you're doing with your small group, I mean, you're here on a Monday night, awesome. Come to For the City and serve. And watch the way that God begins to work through other conversations. 
You're going to be part of conversations in your small groups and other spaces where you're going to actually see God, people, God transforming people's lives in our midst this year. If you've been paying attention, you've already seen it. But you'll see it again. I know you will. He's going to be doing it in me. I trust. Every week, it's like, all right, God, what are we doing? What are we doing now? How do you want to stretch me in this? Put yourself around other people of faith who want to be stretched, and I promise God will show up. He always does in those spaces. And there's this really beautiful moment where the father of a demon-possessed boy comes to talk to Jesus. Again, it's about healing. He's looking for a miracle. And he says this to Jesus. He says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Notice the language. It's a little bit different than the centurion. If you have the ability, Jesus. And look at Jesus' response. What do you mean if I can? (laughs) Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. There's that word again. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. You guys, I take so much solace in that prayer. Maybe if that's you, if you're showing up tonight and you're like, I'm a little, I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't want to be. I want to want to believe. Pray this prayer with him. I do. There's nothing wrong with that. I have a skeptical mind at times. All right, you guys, it's okay to pray, that, to pray this prayer. Jesus, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. God, meet me in that space. Help me with these things. I'm having a difficult time surrendering to you. Maybe the obstacles for you just seem too large. You're looking at the stuff around you and you're like, I got stuff to pray for. But honestly, I, this just seems too big. Can I give you an encouragement? Read stories of people who have overcome obstacles in faith. You read throughout the scriptures and you read the story of Moses. And we're not talking about small obstacles. We're talking about back to the ocean, army about to kill you kind of obstacles. And when you see the story of Moses and God's faithfulness in that, when you see it in the story of Joseph, when you see it in Mary, mother of Jesus, when you see it in Hannah in the Old Testament, when you see it in the disciple Peter, it increases your faith. It puts your own obstacles in perspective. Put yourself around other people of faith because, man, they'll tell you stories of how God has shown up in their lives. You guys, I could I could fill tonight very easily with just like a top 40 of miraculous moments where God has showed up in 25 years of ministry where I was like, I don't know if we could I don't know if we can do paychecks next week. Like those kind of moments where it's like, God, help. And he does. I have yet to be in a space where he has not shown up. It's not always been on the timeline that I had hoped. It's not always been in quite the way that I had expected. But in looking back, each one of those situations, I can be like, man, God, you knew what you were doing. Read stories of faith, if that's you. Maybe you have gotten so used to being the solution that you don't know another way. In other words, maybe you look at your human problems and you create human solutions. And I got to admit, this one probably, this one, this one I'm preaching to myself tonight, okay? I like to create human solutions to human problems. A plus B equals C. And so if if we have a problem, I'm going to reverse engineer it. I'm going to design a solution and a strategy. You guys, that's great, except God math changes the equation a lot. And if the only strength I'm leaning on is my own, then there is no room for God to work in that equation. In other words, I'm going to get human results from my human planning. And when God wants to do stuff with God-sized results, it's going to be limited to me and what I think I can do, or what I can manipulate, or what I can manage. we got to pray bigger prayers than that, than what you can manage. God's not asking you to manage. 
He's a better manager than you are. And so I want you to notice in this story that we have tonight from the centurion, did you notice that he didn't actually present a solution? He doesn't say, my servant needs healed. He comes to Jesus with the problem. My servant is home and he's suffering terribly. He's paralyzed, period. Jesus provides the solution. I'll take care of it. I'll come. And then his response is, you don't even have to do that. If you said it, I trust it. Done. Done deal, Jesus. We're done on the spot. Maybe we need to learn a lesson from him there. Maybe we need to learn to enter in humility. You guys, some of us, as we pray prayers, whether we mean to or not, we turn God into a divine vending machine. I put my little nickel in, and I expect him to give me the product out. God, I I want a girlfriend. I'm going to pray for an hour. You give me a girlfriend. Two hours? I'll do two hours. If that's what it takes, fast for a day, whatever it is. I just need a girlfriend at the end of this process, okay? And God's like, I don't work that way. I don't work that way. In other words, you do not come into prayer entitled for the answer that you want on your time in your way. And that is not what the centurion does. He walks in with a sense of humility. I'm not in charge. You are the God of the universe. You're in charge. God, here's the problem that I have. Help me with this. Walk with me in this. And it's like, okay. Maybe one of the reasons why we struggle in the room is that we also pray very self-centered prayers in that way, where it's all about me and what I want. I'm not praying according to God's will and what he wants in this world. I'm not praying necessarily for the people around me and the ways that I need to minister to them. And then we're so frustrated when God meets us with a no or just silence. But you guys, sometimes when we're praying things that are just so self-centered, I feel like the God of the universe is like, maybe I need to give you some time to mature in this prayer request until you understand my relationship with you. It's not, it's not wrong to pray for yourself, but to pray kingdom-minded prayers, even for yourself and for the people around you. And I think you'll be blown away at the way God starts to show up in that when you become expectant and when you pray his will. We don't have to make demands of God. Even no, you guys, even no is a good answer from God. Second Corinthians twelve seven. the Apostle Paul. If he can pray this, you can pray this, all right? He is begging God. We, we're not told what it is. He, just, he, he speaks in code a little bit. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. He's like, I got a splinter under my skin. It could be he's losing his eyesight at this point, so that could be it. He's going blind, literally. He's going blind. It could be singleness, like he's just lonely. He was alone his whole missionary journey, like most of his life. He had a lot of opposition. A lot of people hated him, tried to kill him. That, that would weigh on a human being, right? So a sense of depression, it could be that. It doesn't matter. We're not told. He begs God. He says, I have this splinter that's under my skin and I can't get it out. And I begged God to take it away three times. And God's, God answered him and said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, God was saying, actually, Paul, I'm going to use this one. This one I'm not going to remove because I'm going to use it in your life. My power will become evident through it. Even that's a good answer when you can trust the authority that sits behind the answer. You with me? Trust is only good so far as the authority behind it can carry it out. And God has the authority and strength and power to carry it out. And I'm asking you to pray crazy prayers, not crazy, stupid prayers. Okay. 
I'm asking you to pray crazy, kingdom-minded prayers that you couldn't accomplish on your own. We are praying for them as a ministry. Seriously, I think it's, it's four or five times this week I've had a conversation with somebody where I have had to say out loud, I, I guess that I'm going to have to put into practice what I'm getting ready to preach on Monday. <laughs> because there's been some face-stretching stuff this past week that's been like, all right, God, here we go. I don't think these are things that I can accomplish on my own. Can you do it? I think you can. So help me be faithful to do what the next step is in front of me, God, and I'll trust you for the 20,000th step down the road. I think you can do that. And I want to put myself around people who live like that. I've said it, I think most weeks I've been preaching this, you'll hear me say it again. What a terrible tragedy it would be to believe in a God who can do miracles but never expect one or ask one of him. What a tragedy that would be in our lives. What a great lesson of faith we can learn from the centurion here. And I want to give you, I'm just going to do a short story time here, okay? Talking tonight about listening to other people's stories that increase our faith. So just lean, lean in. I know it's, it's uh, evening time, so I don't want to make you sleepy. This is a guy named George Mueller, lived in the 1800s. And I, w- I want to read just a, a little excerpt out of his biography he was a guy who uh, was a pastor. I could talk about him a long time because he, he, he made some beautiful selfless decisions in his ministry. Okay? And he started an orphanage because he saw the need. He was in England in the 1800s and um, that had 300 kids in it. By the end of his life, I think he had started five or six orphanages and, and he had taken care of over 10,000 orphans. He did all of this without asking anyone for a penny. Okay, all of the funding just came in for this. And he was a man of unbelievable faith. He knew that when God said that he would take care of orphans, that he meant it. And so he took God at his word all the time. So let me just read you one little moment in the orphanage with him and Abigail, who's a three-year-old. John Townsend became a particularly close friend to George, this George Mueller, as did his wife Caroline and daughter Abigail. Abigail was three years old when her parents moved to Bristol. And she came to look on George and Mary almost as grandparents. Early one morning when she was eight, so almost my daughter's age, Abigail came to visit the orphanage. In his office, George was busy discussing with Jim Wright the many new tracts with scripture knowledge that they should print. And when he looked up from the discussion through his office window, he could see Abigail playing in the garden. George smiled, and he was still smiling and looking out the window when there was a knock at the door. A moment later, the matron of number one orphan house walked in. I hate to bother you, Mr. Mueller, began the matron, but it's happened. The children are all ready for breakfast, and there is not a thing in the house to eat. What shall I tell them? George stood up. I'll take care of it. Just give me a minute, he said. So you understand the situation? The matron takes care of the orphans, and she walks in. I mean, they always lived in a space where they were just about to run out, but they had run out. So they've got 300 kids seated in the dining room ready for breakfast and no food to serve them. That's what's happened. Before going to the dining room at number one orphan house, George walked out to the garden. Abigail, come here, he said. Abigail ran up to him. What is it, she asked. George reached down and took her hand. Come and see what God will do, he said as he escorted her to the dining room. Inside, they found 300 children standing in neat rows behind their chairs. Set on the table in front of each child were a plate, a mug, and a knife, fork, and spoon, but no food. George watched as Abigail's eyes grew wide with astonishment. Where's the food? Abigail whispered. God will supply, 
George told her quietly before he turned to address the children. There's not much time, he said. I don't want any of you to be late for school, so let's pray, he announced. As the children bowed their heads, George simply prayed, Dear God, we thank you for what you're going to give us to eat. Amen. George looked up and smiled at the children. You may be seated, he said. He had no idea at all where the food he just prayed for would come from or how it would get to the orphanage. He just knew God would not fail his children. A thunderous din filled the room as 300 chairs scuffed across the wooden floor, and soon all 300 children sat obediently in front of empty plates. But no sooner had the noise in the dining room subsided than there was a knock at the door. George walked over and opened the door, and in the doorway stood the baker, holding a huge tray of delicious-smelling bread. Mr. Mueller, he said, I couldn't sleep last night. I kept thinking that somehow you would need bread this morning, that I was supposed to get up and bake it for you. So I got up at two o'clock and I made three batches of bread. I hope you can use it. George smiled broadly. God's blessed us through you this morning, he said, as he took the trays from the baker. There's two more in the cart. I'll fetch them. Within minutes, the children were all eating freshly baked bread. And as they were enjoying it, there was a second knock at the door. This time it was the milkman who took off his hat and addressed George. I'm needing a little help if you could, sir. The wheel on my cart broke right outside your orphanage. I have to lighten my load before I can fix it. And there's 10 full cans of milk on it. Can you use them? He looked at the orphans sitting in nice rows and added, free of charge, of course. I'll just send someone out to get them. I'll never fix the cart with all that weight on it. George dispatched 20 of the older children to help, and soon they had the 10 cans of milk stowed in the kitchen where it was dispersed with a ladle. There was enough milk for every child to have a mug full and enough left over for them all to have some in their tea at lunch. And half an hour after George and Abigail had entered the dining room, 300 orphans with full stomachs filed out. You guys, this is the way George Mueller's life went from beginning to end. They're not exaggerating it. That's not lore. He knew these weren't selfish prayers. He's not like, God, I need a new Lamborghini to drive to the orphanage today. God, you have called me to take care of these orphans. I know you don't want them to go hungry. Take care of us. These were the simple prayers of faith that George Mueller, again, story after story after story. I read these in biographies. I see these in scripture. I see them lived out in the people around me, and it increases my faith. People like the centurion who come to Jesus and say, I'm not entitled to this. You have authority. I trust you. And I know if you say it, you will do it because you have the authority behind the trust to make it happen. Tonight, I'm really excited. I'm going to call Austi out here in a second. He's going to talk missions for the year. Okay, I'm really excited to, for you guys to see what trips we're talking about this year. But I want to give you this push to connect that to this because these two things are not disconnected. Every year, we create these little opportunities. I mean, tonight is one of them. Thank you for showing up. Your small groups are another. Thank you for being a part of one. The stuff that Austin is doing, though, is one more opportunity for you to step in places of faith, for you to go to a place on the other side of the planet or at one state away and serve and to give God an open hand and say, God, what might you do with one little step of faith? I give this over to you. And suddenly those barriers, you know, those things you've been holding in your hand all night, they just seem to get smaller. They seem to get dimmer and thinner as the authority that stands behind the trust gets brighter 
and you have a, a, a history of him following through on his promises over and over again, you get to know his character. And I think somehow this faith, this faith thing gets easier. I'm going to pray. Austin's going to come. Father, thank you that you are the authority that stands behind our trust. You are good. You really are good and worthy of our trust. And so as we take our meager steps of faith, God, as we say we do believe, help us with our unbelief. I pray that you meet us in those spaces. There are big obstacles that sit here in the room for some. God, I pray that you'd help them to see that you're bigger. And we love you. Pray all this in your name, Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.